Very good morning to all of us. Great, great. Yeah, life alert, awake, enthusiastic. Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us in those wonderful, wonderful songs. Um, thank you that uh, I have the privilege this morning to just to speak God's word to us. Um, this is the mission month, and I'm your missionary, so thank you so much for the privilege to be sent from you, even though I'm here on every Sunday almost. Yeah. Um, Aiming sends her, her warmest regards. She can't be with us uh, this morning because uh, she is with her church that she came to know Christ on their 60th uh, anniversary. And uh, so she said yes before I was asked to preach. So, you know, she's involved in that particular uh, celebration as it is. But uh, she's thankful that, uh, that she can be with us in spirit this morning. Before I uh, share uh, God's Word, I thought it's helpful to give a quick update on uh, the ministry that we have. Uh, on the, I think on the uh, other service, he said, I'm a Cruise Singapore staff. That's true. I'm a Campus Crusade for Christ staff, also known as Cruise Singapore, uh, rebranded. But still the same, same, uh, same mission, same purpose. And uh, I've been seconded, if you use that word, to serve with East Asia School of Theology, which is our seminary. Um, uh, campus Christian Seminary in Singapore, but serving the whole of East Asia, ranges from Japan, um, which incidentally we have a guest, uh, Mutu Mu, right? And he is actually one of our student this, uh, new student this year. So again, welcome uh, to our church. And so uh, all the way through to Pakistan, that's the swath of uh, people that come from uh, to study. with have got 12 different countries right now serving, or students coming to, to learn uh, full-time in our school. Uh, let me just share a bit about East. Just take a minute. Uh, the mission of East is to develop and equip Christian leaders for the fulfillment of the Great Commission uh, in East Asia and around the world. So I'm there uh, as a, a crew staff, but also seconded to serve there. Um, now, we are still support raising. Uh, we're not paid to do it. Like someone said, we are good for nothing. Uh, and so uh, I'm happy to be there. And uh, I serve in the role as an associate principal and also does a bit of teaching in the area of leadership and other areas, in particular the extension program in China. We now have two programs in China that uh, one works with the pastors and church leaders, the other works with professionals, as in professional workers, uh, Christian workers yeah, in China. So thank you that uh, I can be your representative to the academic in area of uh, training, equipping men and women for, uh, in faith. This is a picture we took in the um, early part of this year, where we had a, what we call a mentoring group retreat over at near Labrador Park. So we had a fascinating time down there together. Great time, just uh, you know, meeting with the Lord and also with one another, praising that. So thank you for standing with us in ministry. Let's pray, shall we, as we go to God's word. Father, thank you so much that you are indeed our Savior and our God. That this mission month can only come about because you first became a missionary to us because of uh, your sons coming on earth, dying on the cross and walking the pathway of pain and death so that we can have eternal life. Thank you, Father, for the words that we sing in songs that you let your kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, speak to our hearts this morning as we look to your word. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The, the title for today's uh, message is Jesus at Jacob's Well. I know that in, the, in your order of service is from scandal to salvation. That's quite scandalous. Uh, but uh, doing God's will is the essence of it. And I thought just to kind of play around with that, just to get your attention a bit here and there. But we're talking about doing God's will in the context of what Jesus has done, uh, or exemplified for us at uh, Jacob's well. 
The question is, how far would you go to do God's will? How far would you go to do God's will? You know, if He calls you to do something that's not comfortable, would you do it? If it requires sacrifice from you, would you do so? If it requires you to, quote-unquote, lose your face, would you do that? I don't know what it is. You know, I asked this question to a couple of my children back home. I said, you know, what, what, what do you think of this question? How far would you go to do God's will? And, uh, you know, wisely some said, uh, the far here can mean two things. It means distance, how far you will go to do God's will. Or it means effort, how far, how much labor, how much sacrifice are you willing to do to do God's will? Well, today we'll learn uh, from, from Jesus, but we also learn from another gentleman, and, uh, which is familiar to many of us, I think. Uh, his name is Konik Vujicic, or Vujicic, or something like that, right? Okay, Nick, huh? I just call him Nick, it's so much easier to pronounce. Um, as many of you know, Nick is, uh, it's, does not have any arms or any legs, uh, but he's a believer, strong believer, and he has come to Singapore a number of times, I think some... I think the last time he came, he shook hands with our President Tony, our Defence Minister, and, and all of that. Uh, and he has that audience because of his tremendous passion, of his uh, miracle in that sense, of having all of this handicap and yet be able to radiate joy. And um, let me just quickly, briefly share his story. Yeah? Throughout his childhood, Nick um, not only dealt with the usual problems of growing up, but he also struggled with depression and loneliness, obviously. He asked the question, why... Was he so different from the rest of the other kids? He questioned the purpose of life, or even if he had any purpose at all. According to him, the victory over his struggles, as well as his strength and passion for life today, is due to his faith in Jesus Christ. Since his first speaking engagement at the age of 19, he has traveled the world over, sharing his story with millions and to a wide range of people, such as young people, students, teachers, business professionals, and even in uh, churches. Um, Today, this young evangelist is married to Kanai, which is a Hawaiian lady, uh, I think uh, with Japanese descent, and has a young son named Kiyoshi, or James. Uh, he has accomplished more than most people have achieved in a lifetime. He's an author, a musician, an actor, and he also has hobbies, go fishing, go painting, and go swimming. Fascinating. His passion is to help men and women to embrace the liberating hope and message of Jesus Christ. Now, he has this to say to us, is if God can use a man with arms and legs to be his hands and feet, then he will certainly use any willing heart. And that is our message for today. Let's look to God's will, shall we? Uh, Jesus at Jacob's well doing God's will. This is the, the kind of the framework, and I think you have it in your order of service as well. Some minor variations to it. Let's dive into the background. Um, John 4, if I can read that for us. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. I'm sorry, uh, you can take out your Bible, your smartphone, your iPad, whatever, and follow along, or you can just read. That's fine. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, Jesus obeyed God's will by going through Samaria. Uh, if you look back at the verse, verse, um, verse, uh, verse 4, he said he had to pass through Samaria. 
Now when John, the, um, the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel John, uh, when he, whenever he uses this term, this idiomatic expression uh, uh, in, in the book of John, he always, in relation to Jesus, he always talk about the will of God. So examples here are ten times, but these are just three examples here. We must work the works of him who sent me, Jesus said. I have other sheep, and I must bring them also. Then he, referring to Jesus, must rise again from the dead. It's the same Greek word, huh? it's just that they are used, uh, translated slightly differently. And, um, so Jesus obeyed God's will by going to Samaria. It is not because he went there, oh, it's a nice shortcut, or it's a nice little trip up and down, you know, but he had to because he's there for divine appointment. Now, it was a very physically uh, difficult journey. All right? um, Jerusalem to Sy- Jerusalem is in the south, and then uh, uh, Sukkar is in the, somewhere in the center, and then Cana, which is where he's going to go, and Galilee is up north. And so that journey is 65 kilometers. Now, 65 kilometers, you have a car that's not an issue, less than, half, less than an hour, and you can ride, right? But here you're on foot. You're walking 65 kilometers, uh, 5 kilometers per hour. That's 13 hours, that's one and a half days of walking. Painful. Uh, out in the sun huh? and the heat and all of that on foot and the terrain is it is not an easy terrain uh, let me show it to us so Jerusalem in the south and then Cana where he's going in the, in the north and in between you see the range of mountain between Jerusalem and Sukkah Sukkah I mean and so as a crow flies only 50 kilometers but on foot it is 65 kilometers uh, so it's, it's one and a half day in fact um, when Jesus arrived there, it's just nice noon. Because uh, one, and if he started early in the morning on the first day, he would have arrived there at noon time. Okay, and so um, this is to show the, the straight line thingy. And then uh, it was not just a physically difficult journey, but at the end of it, he was extremely, extremely exhausted and tired. Okay, Jesus being wearied from his journey was sitting dust by the while. It was about six hours, which is noon time, uh, by Hebrew clock. Uh, 6 o'clock at night by Romans clock, but we're using the Hebrew clock here. And so here is extremely wary. And the Greek word for wary here uh, comes from a word when a person has been beaten thoroughly, you know, bit very hard, you know. So he's, he's literally beat at the end of the time. Yeah, it was extremely exhausting. And then secondly, uh, going out there, fulfilling God's will, not only is it uh, physically taxing, but it also was not a norm, a cultural norm. Now, some of us, you know, know uh, drive through South Buena Vista Road, you know, one that goes round and round, you know, uh, Happington and all that, was formerly a, a racetrack. They say, we can go from point A to point B and, and don't go through that place because it is so hard, you know. I'm going to go through a longer way to get to the destination because it's so much easier. And uh, here, the hard way is not a physical. The Jewish norm is because the, it, the, uh, the, the um, Samaritans and the Jews don't get along. Okay, they had their own fights. They thought I'd share a bit more about that. So instead of going direct route or route, they go this way. It goes up to the, the they go east, Jordan River crossover, and then go along the bank. River bank is nice and flat, and also then across the mountain, and then go through a pass over at the, the northern area, and then continue on from there to reach uh, Cana. So Jesus did not, can do that, but he did not because he is on God's plan. He is following God's will. He was on a mission from God and thus he has a divine appointment. Now a bit about the Samaritans. Um, now they had a bit of a bad press huh? uh, from, from uh, past messages you've heard about them. But actually this Samaritans here, as I understand it, now this, they call themselves Shamar, which is uh, Hebrew for keeper of the laws. 
they are highly religious group of people. They are actually ethnically Jews. They are not racially mixed, as we were made to believe. Uh, they, however, broke away from the Jews in the South uh, because they disagree on some points of Scripture, which is, you know, happens. They accepted only the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch as the Word of God. They didn't regard the, the later prophets, the minor, the major prophets as part of the Word. They built a temple at Mount Gerizim, but which point in time has been torn down by, by the invaders. Um, they changed some of the Passover customs, insisted a certain type of animals, and then um, it's different from the Jews. And they believe the Messiah is like a prophet, uh, like Moses. Okay, a bit more about this a bit later on. So they were separatists whose practices disturbed the Jews from Jerusalem and therefore they are not very welcome or that they, they had their fair share of challenges. Not only are they religiously different, but they are also politically and, uh, and culturally quite different from the Jews. And so they are loggerheads. If you think about Singapore and some of our neighbours up north, you can understand that. Huh? We're all same race, same language, but different culture. And so we clash at times, don't we? This is what happened between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, going to the, the, the text proper here, the woman bridging the divide, I divided it into two sections, bridging the divide to the living water. Jesus introduced a concept of living water to the Samaritans, particularly this woman, and, uh, which talks about eternal life. And he also introduced the concept of him as a savior that not only offers the water, but for which the person must turn to, to be saved from their sin, to be redeemed from their sin. And so there's two sections on here. So let me just go straight to that. There's a picture of him resting there because he was so tired and there's a woman in the well. John 4, okay, verses 7 to 9. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, buy groceries. Huh? Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's kind of a commentary by John. Okay, when Jesus chose to talk with this woman at the well, he well knew that he's breaking gender social taboo. Okay? He lost faith, actually, because, um, in fact, later on in, in John 4, 27, the disciples were rendered speechless when they realized that Jesus, the rabbi, is talking to a woman. See, because to the Jews, the rabbi do not talk to a woman, you see? In fact, uh, some of the very pietist uh, uh, Jews say that if his, uh, his wife spoke to any man, a stranger on the street, that is not related to him or to her, to the man or to the, uh, I mean, to the husband or to the wife, that is a ground for divorce. divorce. And that's, that's pretty stiff. You know? that's, some of them has this particular aspect. So he break a lot of ground. He built bridges that were taboos uh, in his culture. And he did it not because he wants to do it. He, he did it not because of any other reason than the fact that he's doing God's will as part of God's plan of salvation for the woman and for the Samaritans. There are a group of infighting, I mentioned that before, between them. And so um, that's part of the challenge that he has overcome too. In verses 10 onward, let me read that for us. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is too deep. Where then do you get the living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Continue on. 
Uh, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman also said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Now since the Samaritans only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which by the way is being taught uh, at the uh, uh, SDS, a bit of a plug there for them, so go for that class, it's excellent. Now the woman has never been taught about the living water uh, because she has not read about it in the rest of the Old Testament, in Zechariah, in Jeremiah, in Leviticus. Some of this, the concept of living water uh, is explained in the Old Testament scripture, but she has never been exposed to it. So Jesus here very patiently introduced a concept to her and uh, explain to her that it is actually equal to eternal life. Um, the woman's response shows her wanting to, wanting to have this living water, even though she hasn't fully grasped the spiritual nature of this living water. Right? She said, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw again. Right? It's more of a thinking of the actual physical water. By the way, it is not... Uh, that, although Jacob's well is a very unique well, it's not just a well where water drops in. It's actually, it's actually a spring. So technically speaking, the well is, contains living water because water flows through it. Uh, it's an underground. It flows through it uh, very rapidly, actually. And so she was thinking of the natural water. He was talking about a spiritual one. Okay? However, Jesus very focused when it continued to bring her to the next step of spiritual understanding. So we bring us to the second half. Now he has explained in some details about the living water. Now he wants to bring her to recognition that she needs a savior. Verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, yeah, I have no husband. For you have had five and the one whom you now have is not yours. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay. Jesus now moved to address the issue of her heart by asking, are you married? That essentially is what he's asking. Are you married? And she says, no, I'm not, which is true. Um, because he said, uh, Jesus said, you are right. What you have just said is quite true. Verse 18. In fact, he reveals his intimate knowledge of a situation without a hint of condemnation. He said, you, the Samaritan woman, have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Now, that is uh, not, that's an intimate knowledge of her that she didn't share with him, but he knew and she understand that, hey, you know, he, he has miraculous understanding of her situation. I'm going to pause here and, and say this because what I'm going to share will be a bit different from the regular interpretation of this passage that uh, you're familiar with. Uh, but we have done a bit of study in this area and what I'm proposing to you right now is that what she's facing uh, is perhaps not just an issue of morality of, or immorality in, in, uh, in her life. This is an issue of sexual abuse that she is a victim of sexual abuse. And let me explain that. The idiomatic expression to have a man, okay, which is um, the part that you have had five husbands, that same idiomatic expression uh, in, in, uh, in, in both Hebrew and Greek occurs only 17 times in the Bible, with nine times occurring in the New Testament. And often means to mean, uh, mean marriage or have a sexual union. In Luke 20, 33 and Mark 12, 20 to 23, uh, the Sadducees confronted Jesus, or they were trying to, trying to trip him up, right? By saying, hey, if this man has a wife and they don't have a kid and he died, and then the brother marry her because uh, it is required by the Leverical law of marriage, and then he died and no, no kid, and then continue on all the way to the seventh one. So when you go to heaven, will she be a husband, will she be, you know, the wife of seven husbands or something? 
That, that phrase there, she had had the, 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 the man seven times, is the same phrase here. It's the same expression, it's the same idiom, idiomatic expression here. So he is trying, uh, what, what John is trying to express here is that this woman have had experienced abuse of the Levitical law of marriage, which in, in, in Leviticus is said that, which I explained earlier, if, if uh, in a Jew were a man were to die leaving his wife with no son, no inheritance, uh, because lineage is all through the man only at that point of time. And so the, the, the brother must then execute his duty through this Levitical law of marriage and marry this woman and make sure that she has a son so that the deceased name and inheritance and lineage will continue on. Okay? However, what we discovered is that in, in, the, in the past, when this law was in place, there are Jews who actually abused it. They took the woman in, you know, but they cohabit with her, but they refused to execute the legal rights of marriage. So for all intent and purpose, this man is not her husband legally, even though on the surface it appears as if he is. And so, uh, now of course, a counter-argument is, hey, you know, could she also have done some of this thing immorally? The answer is possible as well. But I'm just trying to give you an idea that this woman, and from this instance, if you look at the perspective that she, is, she has been abused uh, uh, in these particular aspects, it makes a lot of sense what she will say next. Okay? Now, Jesus accepted her current state. She says, in a sense, that, hey, this is what you have said is true. There is also another aspect what is known as kinsman redeemer in the, in, the, in the Jewish law. They say that if the brothers were not willing to take on the responsibility of that, someone, a distant relative, another man, who is willing to take on the kinsman redeemer role, would then take this woman in as his wife and then continue on the lineage of that man, of the deceased person, through him as well. And Jesus here is offering himself as a spiritual kinsman redeemer to her at this point of the conversation. And the woman responded, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And do you know why? Because in that Levitical law itself, it says the priest or prophet in this instance, who know of a woman in a situation, must do all he can to rectify it as a kinsman redeemer. And that's only proviso given to the priest. So Jesus here is putting himself in that situation. He, she recognizes that Jesus knew her situation, that Jesus had placed himself as a kinsman redeemer for her. And this sets a stage for a deeper spiritual discussion with Jesus. Let's take a look. In verse 20, she says, Our father worship in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain Oh, in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. She was asking, when she recognized that he is a prophet from God, huh? she then asked a profound question. How can I truly worship God? How can I truly worship God? You see, in the book of Deuteronomy, the test of a true prophet is not just a fulfillment of a prophecy. You know what's the true test of a prophet? It's when the prophet is able to point and bring the hearts of the people to Adonai God. Point them to God. That is a true test of a prophet. 
And so here, here she's saying, you who is, whom I recognize now as a prophet from God, can you tell me and point me to how I can worship God? Truly from my heart. I mean, truly to worship God. And, these, and then, of course, Jesus' response is that, you know, well, salvation comes from the Jew because he is Jewish in terms of his uh, ethnic group. But he's saying the time is at hand when worshippers, true worshippers of God, will worship him not on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem where Mount Moriah is, but in the spirit and in truth. This moves the worship from an earthly temple to the spiritual plane where true worship is to be rendered. So do I worship in this church building called Grace Baptist Church or do I truly worship at, let's say, another building called Trinity Methodist Church or Christ Methodist Church or Covenant EFC, big place and so forth? The answer is not really because ultimately true worship comes from the heart, from the Spirit of God and in truth as well. Okay. Let's continue on. To, uh, verse 25, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I am he. And when he said that term, I am he, she recognizes he's declaring himself to be co-equal with God. So the woman let her, left her water pot and went to the city and said to the man, she left the water pot signifying that she has her field of water. She now has a living water in her life. She went to the city and said to the man, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. The woman of the well declared her expectation of the coming Messiah, um, recognizing again that the Samaritans, remember, believed that the Messiah is a prophet like Moses. But now she began to recognize that this prophet is no, not the same because he declared himself to be co-equal with God. He is the true Messiah God. And so, at that point in time, she believed in him and she expressed her expectation of the Messiah being able to explain everything to us. And she went and be a witness for Jesus to the town. Now, this morning I had the privilege of uh, coming to, uh, to church in a, in a cab, in a taxi, and a privilege also to share, uh, to have some time to share the gospel with the taxi driver. Uh, the man was open for that. I mean, he has gone to church before. Uh, and... Uh, and yes, one of his daughter is a believer. Uh, but it's very interesting because when I ask him to talk about him, he can talk about church, he can talk about activities of the church, he can talk about the things he learned in Boys Brigade, you know, he was with Boys Brigade and all this sort of thing. But when I ask him a question, are you a follower of Jesus? You see, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, and so we, 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 we talk some, uh, share the gospel. It's for so 15 minutes car ride, so 5 minutes gospel, 5 minutes clarifying question, and 5 minutes follow through, right? He didn't receive Christ, by the way, uh, because uh, he still wanted to think about it. But the thing that we can do is to make sure that when you do want to receive Christ, they know how they can do so. Okay. The first group or the first uh, person that Jesus talked to was the Samaritan woman, right? The woman at the well. Now the second group of people are the disciples. And I think there's so much to learn from them, from, from them as well. I won't uh, say these two first. Let me go to the verses first and then I'll come back to that. Uh, in verse 8, it says, disciples had gone away into the city to buy groceries. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? Huh? They were all like, ooh, you know, kind of speechless. Um, and then in verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. This is like a Singaporean. Uh, you know. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Uh, 
So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? I didn't see any wrappers around, you know, not seen about wrappers, nothing, you know. So Jesus said to them, then this is a key thing, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. He brought it up to a high level, it's a spiritual level. He said, my motivation, my food, huh? my motivation, my nourishment, my inspiration, my desire, my unquenchable heart and desire is to do the will of God. To do the will of God. Do we have that unquenchable desire as well? And he move on and says, He is the one, God himself, who sent me. I'm here right now. I'm in, in Samaria. I'm in Sukkar. I'm at the Jacob's well. I'm talking to this woman because God sent me here. It is not because I have an appointment on my outlook. No. It is because God divinely appointed. This woman come to the well at the same time he arrived. At the well, by the way, at the well, uh, they have a very clearly designated areas for Samaritans and for Jews. And so he actually had to move out from his comfort zone, uh, from the designated area of the Jews into the woman's, the Samaritan's area to ask her for water. So he crosses a lot of boundaries. And so he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to what? Accomplish his work. This word accomplish is the same root word, has the same root word as when Jesus went to the cross in Calvary. What did he say at the end? It is finished. And so this, is, this, this verse has rich overtones, echoes that goes all the way back uh, into to the cross. And John here, by the way, John has, this is the, the last gospel written. Now. So he has all the three gospels before him. He has read the book of Acts or two. So he fills in the blank for us and we hear echoes of that throughout his book. His book is marvelous. You have time to read it, do that. Um, and, and the challenge, okay, uh, maybe I continue on and you can see the challenge, huh? Do you not say, Jesus said, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look and gaze at the field, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Now, before I go to the last verse, uh, this, um, this whole time that Jesus was talking about the harvest, the laborers are few. Do you know why? Because this is the year of sabbatical. It's a sabbatical year, according to the calculation made by the scholars. And so in, in, in the sabbatical, the seventh year, you cannot sow, you cannot reap. And the four more months is when, this is about May or June, four more months is the fall season. That's when the year of sabbatical ends and they can renew the sowing and the reaping. Therefore, when they look at the field, there's no soul around. Why? Not because they are not reaping or, so, or harvesting, it's because they can't in the year of sabbatical. So these grains were heavy with, with, the, with, with, plant, with the produce. No one is reaping them. No one is harvesting them. It's silent. Nobody is. And so Jesus looked at all of them and said, hey, you know, people, just take note that there are souls to be harvested. Tremendous men. Tremendous number. There's nobody out down there doing it. But you, my dear friends, and in the, in the next word it says, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. So in the previous verses, he said, God sent him and accomplished the task. Now he's turned to his disciples and says, So send I you to accomplish the task that God has given to you. But he added, and I was it, for which you have not labored. You see, Jesus has just done that, you know. The amount of time the disciples were away was the amount of time Jesus had time with the, the Samaritan woman. But he came back with no results except for food. 
You know what I'm saying? They were not making an impact, spiritual impact, in the town where they went. Same amount of time. And in all recorded scripture, in the four gospels, this is the longest conversation ever recorded between Jesus and a woman. It might mean something to us. So think about that. When you go grocery shopping, when you do the mundaneness of life, is there an opportunity for you to share God's love and God's salvation with someone you meet along the way? So there you go. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields and the souls of men. They are white for harvest. The last one, I'm running out of time. The final one is the Samaritans uh, being fruitful. This one is indeed the saviour of the world. This is the last verse of that of that uh, section here. From that city, many of the Samaritans believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word and they would say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the saviour of the world. I tell you that's a huge paradigm shift. Just imagine for a minute now what it would take for them to accept this statement. He's not just a saviour for us Samaritans. He's not just a a saviour for the Jews and the Samaritans. He's a saviour of the world. Can you imagine that? How much, what is the gap they have to overcome to recognise that he's a saviour of the world? You know, and we know that. And we know that. But they, at that point in time, there's a major shift. And they have to give up a lot of things. They give up the the fact that they have to, you know, worship the Mount Gerizim. They have to give up the fact that it's not just five five, uh, uh, books in the Old Testament. They have to accept the full counsel of God to the Old Testament. You know? um, and they have, to, they have to move away from that religious exclusivity and say, we, we have the prophet like Moses. No, he says the Messiah is for the world. And, and there's one thing I can learn from them. You look at verse, uh, verse, verse 40. Okay? When the Samaritans came to Jesus, when they came to Jesus at the well, at Jacob's well, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days. Wow. Not only do they avail themselves of the seeker's class, which is to hear the gospel, they also go for the subject class as well. Two solid days, you know. Now, if Jesus were to come here, if we were around here, would you invite him to your home and spend two days with you to tell you about disciple-making or about how to live a Christ-like life? I don't know about you, maybe my, my first husband, oh no, he's going to see all my sins and faults and failures, you know. But this man from, Samarit, from, uh, from the town of Sukkar did just that. And we can do that too with the Lord, in the Spirit. All right. Okay, quickly, uh, the last uh, three set of questions here. What does it mean to us who are sent by God? You are sent by God. Okay? The Great Commission is sent to all of us. Are you ready to do God's will no matter the cause? Question that you need to ask. Ponder. Ponder. How are you living your life now to show that you are ready? And how would you live differently so that you are ready to do His will? You know, Jesus demonstrated that he as a God who pursues you. He pursues you to salvation. He pursues the Samaritan woman for salvation. He pursues the disciples that they will learn to be fishers of men. He pursues the Samaritans so that they too will know the Savior of the world. Are you pursuing someone on his behalf so that salvation will come to him or to her? It may be a difficult one. Maybe someone of very different have different values than yours. If God has laid that upon your heart, the first thing you can do is to pray, pray, and pray. I read a recent testimony of a, of a, of a woman who was living a homosexual lifestyle for a long time. And the Lord um, brought her back to himself. She's already a Christian at the point. 
through a journey of faith and to other like-minded believers. And when, we, when it was asked, what is the first thing you can do when you heard that someone is a homosexual? And she said, pray, pray, and pray. Because the battle is won on our knees, not on some billboards. It is won on our knees. Our battle is spiritual in nature. So be sensitive to the Lord's leading to reach out to those who are very different from us, perhaps even an enemy in our cultural or religious context. Take steps to breach divides that will facilitate the expression of God's love to them. Let us pray, shall we? As you bow your head in silence before the Lord, tell him whether are you ready to do God's will. Not to make you feel guilty, but really asking yourself in your heart the question, are you ready to do God's will no matter the cost? And then are you, how are you living out your life now to show that you are ready? And finally, how would you live differently so that you are ready to do His will? Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that you call us and you sent us to the world. That we can share your love to others and that others may know Jesus, whom we have as well. Thank you, Father. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand as we respond?